Good morning, church. Um, even to this day, it feels weird saying that to a camera. Um, I feel like I'm talking to nobody, which feels like I'm at home, like I normally am talking to myself when the children don't listen to me. So we've made it um, to the halfway point in our journey in Mark's Gospel, and I've split today's readings and talk into three scenes, just to try and act like I'm, ex- I'm an exciting sermon writer. And we're looking at Mark chapter 7, verse 31, up until chapter 8, verse 26. So get your Bibles, phones, whatever you, you use to read the Bible ready in that part of the Bible. And before we look at our first scene, let's pray. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, you his servants. Praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised both now and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is exalted over all the nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high? Who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He sits them with princes, with the princes of his people. He settles the childless woman in her home as a happy mother of children. Praise the Lord. And Lord, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for your mercies. Let us not take for granted those new mercies that you've given us this morning. Even as we stand or sit or walk or drive wherever we are, knowing what's in our heart, what we've said and what we've done, Lord, thank you for your mercies. Lord, still our hearts and and clear our minds. Let this be about you. Let this be about your kingdom and your son. And may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing to you. O Lord, O Rock and my Redeemer. Amen. So, scene one. Back into Gentileville. I've called it. So I'm going to read from chapter 7, 31 to 37. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to take his hand, to place his hand on him. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he, sp- he spat and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to the heaven, he looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephatfa, which means be opened. At this the man's ears were opened, his tongue's, tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And as Denzel said um, last week, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in chapter 7, Mark has been demonstrating Jesus bringing about this new phase in God's salvation plan for his creation. And even though the Jews believed and still believe that salvation 
is and was just for Israel and was dependent on obedience to and strict following of the law, Jesus is seen revealing that actually salvation is actually an issue of the heart and it's available to all nations. One way of him demonstrating this clear truth is when he heads into a Gentile region and shows compassion to a Gentile woman, as we learned last week. And we see from the start of scene one, Mark has made a point of giving us Jesus' almost his travel itinerary. He's gone back to Gentileville. And we read over these chapters that we're in at the moment that Jesus has been spending an extended period of time in this Gentile region. Back in chapter 5, Mark writes that Jesus and his disciples traveled to the region of the Gerasenes, a city filled of Gentiles, but they were only there for a short while. After releasing a man from the demon that was possessing him, the crowds were stirring, and as usual, the Pharisees were concocting, so Jesus had to leave. But before he did, though, he told the once demon-filled man to go and tell your people what the Lord has done and how he has had mercy on you. And we see that Jesus returns to Decapolis. Jesus is by now really well known, and huge crowds are coming to him, seeking miracles of their own. And in verse 32, we read, after word spreading that Jesus was back in town, some people bring a deaf and mute man to him. And the fact that they were coming to Jesus with this deaf, mute guy, and the way they begged Jesus to place his hand on him, shows us just how much faith they had that this Jesus guy can heal people. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak, we read, the overwhelmed with amazement crowd were saying. And the description of the man's condition uses a very rare Greek word in the, the Greek translation, mogileos. And this word only appears in the, what is called the LLX or the Sept Septuagint, or more commonly called the, the, the Greek Old Testament. The word appears once, and, it, and it's in Isaiah um, at chapter 35, verse 6. Chapter after chapter in Isaiah, we see this announcing that, that, that you know, the coming judgment um, that is going to be that people are going to face, but the tone shifts in chapter 35. And here the author is announcing that a time is coming when God will save and bless his people. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped, we read in verse 5. And the crucial verse 6, then, the lame, then will the lame leap with a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Yet again we see Jesus fulfilling prophecy. Words spreading about Jesus healing a deaf and a mute man will raise eyebrows among the people that were well-versed with the prophet Isaiah's words. And then we see the compassionate side of Jesus. We know Jesus can calm a storm without even breaking a sweat, and, and he can tell a cripple, get up and walk, and they do. But Jesus, in this scene, he takes this guy aside, he touches his ear, puts his saliva on the man's tongue, which isn't COVID-safe, to say the least, then he, he looks up to heaven and he lets out a sigh. Mark doesn't explain Jesus' action, but what is patient and, and, and purposeful 
interaction with this man kind of reveals about Jesus is his compassionate side and the sympathy that he has for human suffering. And at Jesus' word, he was healed. The man's ears were opened and his tongue was loosed and he began to speak plainly, we read. Here we see Jesus' power and his compassion in full action. And then, again, we see Jesus telling, commanding the people not to run and chat about his miracles. I remember some years ago, there was somebody um, who's leaving a job at church, and as the case is, when you leave a job, you, you know, there's equipment to hand over, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so there was a laptop that had this certain software on it, and we had the laptop back, tick, but we needed to update the version of the software on the laptop, and we needed the admin password to be able to do it. Simple things, you'd think. So I texted the guy, and asked him if we could get the password, nothing. No reply for days. And then a reply came back days later, I'll see what I can do. Now I wanted my reply to be KMT in capitals, but I thought no, let me be gracious. So I said cool, as soon as you can, that'll be great. Days went by and we're waiting for, you know, we're waiting to sort out the issue and I've texted him again, nothing. Next day, another helpfully unhelpful reply came. And all this time, my boss is chasing me because Sunday's getting closer. We need to update the software because it's not working, et cetera, et cetera. And so I've screenshotted the conversation between me and, and this ex-colleague of mine. Um, and I've, I've sent the, the, the screenshot off to my boss. I thought, let, if I, let me show my boss, because my boss was really on my case. I thought, let me show my boss, look, I'm doing, I've done the best I can so that he'll, he'll get off my back. So I've sent off the screenshot with a text message for a bit of context, something like, this is the convo I've been having all week with, with, with Blank about this issue. I'm going to keep trying. Um, they're being a bit unhelpful, to say the least, but nothing more I can do. Then a couple of minutes later, I've seen my phone flash up with a notification to say I've got a new text message. I open it up, and it's a notification to say that somebody's sort of done a thumbs up to my message. And when I looked, it was the person who I was talking to my boss about that had thumbed up my message because I'd sent the screenshot to the person who I was talking to my boss about, telling them how unhelpful they've been, um, instead of my boss. And I mean, obviously, this wasn't that deep, mad awkward, um, and I don't see them very often in many circles, thankfully. Um, and in the grand scheme of life, it's not that deep. But, you know, even in the news over the last month, we've seen that, I don't know if you follow politics or not, but we've seen that, um, the Prime Minister's former Chief Advisor, Dominic Cummings, Mr. Barnard Castle himself, he's been revealing all, all manner of, of stuff all over the place. I mean, the other day he was quizzed for seven hours by MPs. And he revealed some really damn, damning stuff about the Prime Minister and the Health Secretary. But as is the case in this, this modern Boris Trump world of politics, they seem to have been, been completely unharmed reputation-wise and unfazed by it all. And it's almost as if the leaking of all this information and all these revelations coming out is making the Prime Minister more and more popular, with some people anyways. Hopefully nobody in this room, in Jesus' name. But we see that, but we see that Jesus in this passage doesn't want things about what he's done and what he's doing, etc., to get out. 
And this isn't the first time either. Time and time again through Mark, we see Jesus telling demons not to chat his business, healing the man with leprosy and telling him to not tell anyone. Jairus, the synagogue leader whose daughter was dying, Jesus took her by the hand, Talitha Kume. Little girl, I say to you, get up. And she did. And they were all astonished, we read. And they were. Because yet again, this healing man, he'd done it again. And yet again, Jesus told them, don't tell anyone. Jesus, as we've seen, is going around doing things that were raising serious ideas and, and really serious suspicions about him. He's got the Pharisees already mad at him. There's Herod who's starting to hear things about um, what he's doing. And rumors of this prophet man, this healer man, Jesus, was spreading everywhere. But time for Jesus to be revealed fully for who he has, for who he is, has still not come. This canon will only happen after his death and resurrection. Yet despite Jesus telling them to keep quiet, they can't help it. They can't help but tell people what they've witnessed Jesus doing. So this is undeniably a scene where we see our Lord and Saviour work a big miracle. But the connection to Isaiah 35 is a reminder for us all of the bigger picture of what's going on here. Jesus has come to fulfill the promise from God that things won't be staying as they are. That God is bringing salvation, blessing and joy for his people. Jesus' ministry, his works, his miracles, it reveals that God's kingdom is coming and that day is drawing near when all of God's promises for his people will be fulfilled. Amen. And then we move on to scene two. Feeding the people and the Pharisees at it again. So we're now in chapter eight, exactly halfway through Mark. I'm going to read from verse one. During those days, another large crowd gathered since they had nothing to eat. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. And they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 people were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanatha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. And he sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. 
aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the bread loaves, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. You can imagine the face expression of the person that answered twelve. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? And throughout the Bible, there are many reoccurring and persistent themes. Time and time again, over and over, we see God's people forgetting him or not trusting him. It's the story of the people of Israel. It just runs like a stream through their history. This stubborn and and short-memoried people, if memory is even a word. And this story, this, this theme, it carries on with Jesus' closest, closest people, his 12 disciples. All through Mark's gospel, we see the faith of the, of the disciples being dull, and, and, and we see their slowness to really, truly believe. And after all that they have seen and heard, while moving around with Jesus, it can be easy for us to, you know, dash a couple of metaphorical glass house stones after them and and shake our heads at their disbelief and hard hearts towards Jesus and his power and his compassion and abilities. I mean, they saw it firsthand. But how many of us can say with our chest that even with all we've learned about God from the Bible in the days, months, years that we've been a reader and believer of it and all we've seen him do in our lives and in the lives of others through and, and, and you know all that we've known him to have done through the ages, how many of us at times can be honest enough to say we struggle to fully trust in him? And I didn't say believe. Trust and believe, although they come hand in hand, they are two different things, but don't we, just like these disciples, at times fail to see Jesus for who he really is and trust in him completely? And in scene 2, Mark chapter 8, 1 to 21, actually 26, uh, we see that the pattern of disbelief with the disciples continues. And Jesus confronts them. Their slowness to to over... This carries on until Jesus has to basically cuss them sternly. But even after Jesus is warning them about the danger of their unbelief, We should also remember the mercy and patience he shows them. He allows them to continue following him. And with us, even though some of us, maybe all of us in our own way, can be slow to trust Jesus, he's still kind and still merciful to us. Even in our weakness of faith and and, and, and trust moments, he calls even the weak in faith to faith. I will accept all who turn to him. Slightly digressed. But in scene two, we find ourselves faced with a similar event from what happened in Mark chapter six. Even though the two miracles are similar in lots of ways, it's important to remember and to keep in mind that they are two separate events at which Jesus is achieving specific objectives. The first feeding event took place in a predominantly Jewish region. But this mass feeding event we find ourselves with here 
took place in a Gentile region. And once again, we see Jesus de demonstrating that he has come not just for the Jews, but to save all people from all tribes and all nations. And if we look at the context of this scene, it, it seems clear to see that one of the main reasons that Mark records this second miracle was to show the disciples dull faith and, and sluggishness to believe. Just like the people of God throughout the Old Testament, disciples struggled to remember God's care and power. But where in this bush place is anyone going to find enough food to feed them, they asked Jesus. I slightly paraphrased there. As if they haven't been here before in the same situation. Straight after Jesus does his thing and miraculously feeds the 4,000, Jesus and the disciples, they set off, as we read, to the region of Dalmanutha, a place near the western side of, of Galilee. And as soon as Jesus arrives back in this Jewish region, and before he could even catch his breath, the antagonistic Pharisees are on him again. And this time they're demanding a sign from heaven to try and test Jesus, a sign from God to, to authenticate who Jesus claims he is. But Jesus being the G that Jesus is, he's not having none of it. Jesus knew the evilness of their intentions, and so he refuses their demands. But at this point, Mark is showing us a glimpse into Jesus' heart as he sighs deeply at the unbelief of the Jews. We then see Jesus again. He departs from this region, this Jewish region. And perhaps this is Mark showing us a change in Jesus' relationship towards Israel. And as Jesus and the disciples head back across the sea, we learn of another bread shortage in the boat. Again, they're in a remote place and in need of food, and the disciples quickly start to worry. While they're sailing, though, Jesus takes the opp this opportunity to warn the disciples about the hypocrisy and unbelief of the Pharisees. And, and think back to your school days. I mean, it might be further back for, for some of us than some, but think of your worst of worst subjects at school. And picture you sitting at a desk in front of your teacher who's teaching that subject and them trying to explain something that you didn't understand or get for the 10th, for the 20th time. And if your teachers were anything like mine, they would have had a certain look or expression on their face at this point. Like the look that I might have had when I was helping my children with their homework sometimes. And, you know, you explain the problem or the equation or the meaning to them of something over and over and over and over again. And then there's me getting impatient, wondering, how can they not get this? And I'm sure I'm not the only parent to have, to have been there, or the only child to have been there with, with, with my mum or, or your, your parent. But picture the look or expression on, on your teacher's face or your face. If you're a parent or, or, or uncle or aunt or sister or cousin who's been in that situation with a child that just doesn't get it. And I'm sure that was somewhere near what Jesus' face looked like by the end of this boat trip. Back to the boat, and, and Jesus is using this common metaphor of, of leaving bread and yeast to warn them of the danger of unbelief, probably as well in response to the disciples' own weakness in this area. Even though Jesus was using this, this common metaphor to warn the disciples, they completely miss his point. And as usual, they're concerned about the physical and they don't get the spiritual nature 
of Jesus' warning. And so Jesus goes and, and, and he rebukes them with, with a load of rhetorical questions, not really expecting any answers, even though they did get a couple. And even after everything they've seen and heard Jesus do, they continue no better than, than, than those with eyes but cannot see and, and ears who, who do not hear. And so what does this mean, mean for us? What can we learn from scene two? Well, I see two warnings and, and a bit of an encouragement. Well, a big, a big encouragement. And warning one is that we can be close to Jesus. We can be really familiar with him, yet never truly believe in him or trust in him as the one that we need, as the only one we need. And we need to be continually searching our hearts to ensure that we've truly trusted him with all things. Warning two, those of us that have trusted Jesus for our salvation can be guilty at the same time of not trusting him with our day-to-day lives. We might know Jesus saves and forgives us, yet we still struggle with, with anxiety and fear and you know, doubting God's sovereignty and care in our lives. So what's the encouragement now? You might be wondering. God is patient, really patient with us. Even in the midst of our failures and our doubts, if you've ever found yourself recently or at any point feeling like you're slow to trust God, take heart knowing that God is merciful and is willing to forgive all who call on him. Throughout our third and final scene now, the blind will see reading from verse 22 they came to Bethsaida and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him he took the blind man by hand and led him outside the village when he had spat on the man's eyes and put his hand on him Jesus asked do you see anything he looked up and said I see people they look like the trees walking around once more Jesus put his hand on the man's eyes Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. And throughout the Bible we see that the metaphors of blindness being used to describe someone's spiritual state before they they are saved. And in verses 22 to 26, we see Jesus performs this extraordinary miracle. He restores the physical sight of a man who was blind. And on its own, the miracle is another sort of revelation of Jesus' compassion towards those in need, but more so of his power. But we can see by the way Mark shares the miracle that it's clear that Jesus also wanted this miracle to almost be an example, firstly for his disciples, but I would say by extension us, of how important it is to have our eyes fully opened we're all born spiritually blind and Jesus is the only one who can open our eyes and in the previous scene Jesus warned and rebuked his disciples because of their dim faith and it's on the back of this warning and rebuke that Jesus heals this blind man illustrating that Jesus himself is the only one who gives sight who gives sight to people so as Jesus and the disciples arrive in Bethsaida a blind man is brought to Jesus for healing. And we've got a man brought to Jesus with a condition that this man can't change himself. 
But whoever brought him to Jesus believed that Jesus had the power to help him. And in a similar way, none of us are able to open the eyes of another person who is spiritually blind. But by being faithful enough to introduce people to our Lord and Saviour, through the message of the gospel, God can give them sight. And in most cases, Jesus heals someone straight away with just a touch or word, even a touch of his cloak, and the person is fully healed. But this time, instead of saying a command to heal the man straight away, Jesus asks him a question about how effective his healing has been, like Jesus needs to know. The man replies that he can see trees walking around, a clear indication that his sight wasn't quite fully restored. And I'm thinking here that Jesus was healing this man in stages so that he could help the disciples to see the difference between partial and full sight. And even though they were further down the spiritual sight road than the Pharisees, who were blind as blind is blind, they still didn't fully see. Imagine you're in the boat with Jesus. It makes me tingle the thought of it. And you're, you're begging the man for bread, thinking that he can't give it to you. They still didn't fully see. Imagine their faith was like a dimmer switch. It's switched on, there's light, they can kind of see around the room, but it's dim, and they've got, they've got to squint a lot to see where they're going. Maybe I'm kind of stretching the metaphor a bit too far as usual. But my point is, the disciples needed their spiritual dimmer switch turned up, and only Jesus can turn that up. After the part healing Jesus touches the man again and this leads to his sight being fully restored and then as we read on we see that this miracle leads to a turning point for the disciples while this passage has been about the disciples inability to see in the next chunk of the chapter that I, I think brother Richard is taking us through next week we see Peter declare his belief in Jesus as the Messiah it's a massive transition in the disciples faith journey So what does this scene tell us? What, what do we get from this? What, what's our take home from this last scene? There's our common need. The Bible is clear that everyone is born spiritually blind. And we all need our eyes open to the truth of the gospel. And none of us have, have got the means or the ability to gain sight for ourselves. It, it's a gift from God. Through the person of Jesus and his work on the cross, that we receive this fully eye-wide-open 4K HD vision of faith. And then there's our common calling. As we think about this blind man who can now see the miracle that's happened, it should remind us of the need for us to share the good news of Jesus. We can't open blind eyes Let's not kid, ever kid ourselves that it's us. But we've been called to share the good news, the, that, that message of the only one who gives sight to the blind. And finally, we have our continually sort of gaining of sight. There's, there's, a, there's a simple way to put it. We've, we've been saved. God has already saved everyone who, who of us who's repented and believes in Jesus and what he did on the cross by dying for us all. And if we believe that God raised him from the dead, repent, believe we are saved. 
and we're being saved. There's this continual working out of our salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul writes, for it's God who is at work in you, he writes in the Philippians. Paul spoke of those who are being saved in his second letter to the Corinthians. There's this clear indication in the, Paul's letters that our salvation is something that is continuous. We're working it out, getting to grips with it. And we're going to be saved when Christ returns. In his letter to the Romans, Paul writes, And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. So we're still, in a sense, being saved by working out our salvation, by gradually growing in our ability to see Jesus, to know Jesus, to love and to trust Jesus. This is how we work towards that 4K spiritual sight that Jesus will give to all who believes when he returns. So brothers and sisters, as we reflect back on our scenes or passages it does kind of raise a question for us all. If we look into our lives, into our families, our faith journey, our church, what would make Jesus sigh deeply today? What is it about us that might make him like a frustrated teacher or parent ask us or say to us, you still don't get it? Let us pray. Hear the words of the prophet Isaiah. Even the wilderness and desert will be glad in those days. The wasteland will rejoice and blossom with spring crocuses. Yes, there will be an abundance of flowers and singing of joy. The deserts will become as green as the mountains of Lebanon and as lovely as Mount Carmel or the plain of Sharon. There the Lord will display his glory, the splendor of our God. With this news, strengthen those who have tired hands and encourage those who have weak knees. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear, for your God is coming to destroy your enemies. He is coming to save you. And when he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind and unplug the ears of the deaf. The lame will leap like a deer and those who cannot speak will sing for joy. Springs will gush forth in the wilderness and streams will water the wasteland. The parched ground will become a pool and springs of water will satisfy the thirsty land. Marsh grass and reeds and rushes will flourish where the desert jackals once lived. And a great road will go through that once deserted land and it will be named the Highway of Holiness. Evil-minded people will never travel on it. It will be only for those who walk in God's ways. Fools will never walk there. Lions will not lurk along its course, nor any other ferocious beasts. There will be no other dangers. Only the redeemed will walk on it. Those who have been ransomed by the Lord will return. They will enter Jerusalem singing, crowned with everlasting joy. Sorrow and mourning will disappear, and they will be filled with joy and gladness. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.